All right, we're going to proceed, just progress here as we move along this morning into the Word of God. Good morning and grateful to be with you this morning again. Just uh, worshiping the Lord and praising Him. Thank you, Sophie and, and Angel, for leading us in those wonderful songs and just declaring who the Lord was. Taking charge with the flute. Yeah! That was awesome. Praise God. Our text this morning is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, although really you could choose ultimately any of one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem uh, during the week in which he was betrayed and then crucified for our sins. But we're in Matthew chapter 21, and we'll read that in just for a moment, and a total message is called King for a Day. You know, all of us have had, we've, we've talked about these in different contexts, whether it's in a sermon from the pastors or in classrooms or in discussions we have with one another, but we've each had expectations that weren't quite met uh, in our lives, right? And we feel different things like that. So um, I don't pick on my wife all the time. I'm not picking on her, but I, I use her as an illustration and, uh, and my, my kids. And we do that with our families, right? Because we learn a lot from them. So I, I, uh, I met my wife when I was in Bible school in Barrington. And um, so I came as a, whatever I was, 22, 23-year-old, and I was not interested in that at all. That wasn't my scene. That wasn't my thing. I wasn't looking. I was interested in the marriage thing and all that stuff and whatever. That just wasn't on my mind. But then, of course, she came along, you know. <laughs> but, but, I, but, I, but I do say, but I do say, and, and I, I just, I do want to praise God for this, and I... I it's not too late. If you're real young, I just want to tell you something because I really believe this and everyone's different and it's okay, but it is possible to, to have one boyfriend or girlfriend and them have be your spouse. Amen. Amen. That was me. Amen. I'm, not, I'm not passing on a rule. I'm just saying it's possible and it's okay. And so, and if that's, and it's okay, you don't, you don't have to search around and be, go drive yourself nuts with that whole scene. God will bring it along. It'll happen. It's all good. All right. Amen. So, Amen. so my whole point is, is that Sharon had expectations. After about two and a half years, I was in Ohio. She's in Connecticut. And I would come back for school for the school year, of course, in Barrington. She was in Connecticut. Is that we had these conversations getting, you know, more serious. We know we're going to get married and we, we're, we're, we're sure of it. But she didn't have a ring. And she's getting antsy. And she, she's, she's, look at her face. She, you know, because she, she, I remember this. This is part of the story. And, and, and literally and seriously, she was actually contemplating getting to a point and saying, what are you, what are you doing? And we talked about, what are you doing? Where's the ring? I'm waiting. And if it wasn't coming, it was like, Don't ask me why it took so long, but maybe because it was, I didn't have much practice in the whole dating scene. I don't know. And knowing, I don't but I knew, but just, I was taking my time, and I was going to school and everything else, right? Now I'm sounding like I'm making excuses, right? But <laughs> listen, she got a ring, and we've been married almost 20 years, so praise God, all right? And, and in spite of being married to me, or just she's still smiling, like, you know? I mean, so that's, that's a great reward to have a happy wife, even when, you know, yeah, sometimes I'm not the best, and vice versa, I suppose, but I can't really say that about her but listen it's it's amazing what God has done my we all had expectations she was getting to a point and because the expectation was not being met in her time frame it was frustrating and understandably so right 
We have met, all had expectations. Sometimes we have had expectations, I have, you had, of things that are completely unrealistic. And then when it doesn't happen in our time frame, we're all bent out of shape. And we're like, oh, what's going on? How come it didn't happen? You know, like, and, and, and they're just completely off the wall, like these crazy fantasies, really. But they become expectations for us. And sometimes we have expectations that are very realistic, like Sharon did, and they don't happen, and you, you, in your time, or it takes a long time, and you get frustrated, and you have all kinds of emotions, and it, it's frustrating, right? When we place a lot of weight and faith and trust and expectations that sometimes we really don't have anything to found them on, or we just, we're hoping and we're wishing, I could even say, in some cases, unfortunately, but we've all had certain expectations and big expectations of people and even of God. And we've all felt the disappointment of not having that expectation fulfilled. Amen? Each one of us. You might say, well, what does it have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, everything. A lot. Let me explain after you read the story. In Matthew chapter 21. And it says here in verse, 20, verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And that was in Zechariah. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And then verse 7. I'm sorry, hold on, let me just pause here in verse 6. There's something here, it's it's a little tangent here, but so important in this Palm Sunday story. One of the best ways to prepare for Easter, or to prepare, let's just make it, very broad and truthful, to prepare for anything we do for the Lord, living for the Lord. The best thing we can do is to do as he tells us to do. Amen. 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 That's the best thing we can do. The disciples are told to do this crazy thing, go and untie a horse, or a colt, I should say, and untie, untie this, and just take it, basically. And they went and they did because they trusted fully surrendering and just obeying his word. Do you remember that this is, this is nothing new? This is, Jesus' first miracle, he, what does he do? He changes the water into wine. And Mary is there, and everyone, all the guys are around, everyone's a famous, and they got these empty jugs, and they're looking at her, and she's saying, just do what he says. Do what he tells you to do, John records in chapter 2 of John. Why? It's an important thing, and so it's a little tangent here, but it's so important to understand in this story that the disciples obeyed. Their immediate response, like, you said it, Lord? Okay, I'm going to do it. Man, that is such a different scene from, from me, from us, with a lot of things right now. If we really want to look into our hearts. And it's going to come back full circle with this idea of obedience at the end and submission. Okay? Verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In verse 9, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, 
This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, Easter season calls for us, as we've been mentioning, it calls for us, and, and we do it all year, really, but especially this time of year, we check out the events and we, we, we focus on them and we rehearse them in our minds again through Scripture and just meditating and thinking about the fact of what Jesus did in His Passion Week and all, all the suffering He went through for our sake. And you know what? Even though it happened 2,000 years ago, when you start to evaluate and look in Scripture and see the trek that Jesus was on and what He went through, Man, it just reawakens that deep gratitude again for what Jesus did for me in my place. If you really read what happened and what was going on, and all the nuances of just psychologically, emotionally, politically, spiritually, and in many other ways what's going on, and just the oppression, the weight of sin, the sin of the world, the darkness that he was in, and then to know that he did it for you and me. It just reawakens that gratitude and stirs that in, inside of, and should stir that inside of us all over again. Take a minute to do that if you haven't already to read the accounts of that last week of Jesus and his life. But in our text this morning in Matthew 21, I see two contexts that are playing out here. There are two contexts that are happening and they relate to us today and we can, we can, we can look at. And there, there's these two environments, if you will, or I'm going to just stick with context, and they're, they're crashing. They're clashing, they're coming like this, and there's, there's somewhat of an explosion in between. That It's a dividing thing, and it causes us to make a decision. But there's, they're, they're crashing. And the first context that we find in our scripture text in chapter 21 on this, that Palm Sunday, or that triumphal entry of Jesus, is that it was one that existed that was physical and political in nature. That was the context that we see in our scripture. And in Jerusalem that day, there was this physical thing going on, and it was very political at the same time. You know, during the feasts and all these great things that are happening, one of the things that would happen, remember this, this context that Jesus is in. The Romans are ruling the world. Everyone remember that? If you know a little history in Bible, that, that time, the first century, the Romans are ruling the world. Boy, their history is, man, if you, it's amazing stuff. They were powerful, and they did some brutal things, and they did a lot, they did a lot, of, a lot of innovative things, a lot of great, create, they did amazing things, and yet they did really, yeah, things. Not good. And the Romans, during the feast, or whenever there were celebrations, and the people got into the town, they would flex their muscles, if you will, to show how strong they were, and that they were the rulers of the known world. So, it reminds me of, you know, we've seen recently, especially like the, the dictator of North Korea, right? Or other dictatorships or other governments, forms of governments and whatnot. And what they do is to flex their muscles. You don't see much about these governments or nations. What you do see even broadcast on our television screens are these parades of like 100 foot long missiles on top of these trucks with like 35, 40 wheels on them, tanks, and all the soldiers marching in perfect, you know, just synchronized with all their weapons and everything else. And they're showing off their might, their power, what they have in their arsenal. And they're flexing their muscles saying, we're strong, we're tough. We got under control. You're under our thumb. It's, we rule. And that's what the Romans did. They would do that. They would display just how strong they were. And remember the Jews, they were under the thumb of the Romans in many ways. 
And events like this, or events when the, the, the city that got together all convened, they, they especially showed off their power, their chariots, their horses, their spears, their shields, their body armor, and the soldiers in the streets, and they were showing, we're in charge, you are under our governance, we rule, we're strong. Now, this is nothing new, but for centuries now, the Jewish people, God's people, have been under oppression, under the thumb of many nations. And so much of it has been because of the result of their lack of submission or obedience to the word of the Lord as their God, the one true God. And now, here are the Romans, and they're there again in that same situation, and they're oppressed. There's oppression going on, and they're, they're singled out as a people group, and they go through different trials and persecutions because of that. Boy, some things haven't changed even to this day, have they? It, it's, it's just the truth. And on the other hand, you have the Roman Empire demonstrating their power. And on the other side of the city, entering the city, there's, there's this man named Jesus who's coming in on a donkey with people's cloaks on its back. Let me set the table for you a little further. Jesus has just spent the last three years teaching incredible lessons of truth and doing miracles, the kind of things, you know, that got people's attention, I think. He had made statements in his ministry about setting up a kingdom, that he was the son of God, that he actually was God, he made those statements. That he was the Messiah, that he's the king who would come and save the Jewish people from, well, the Roman oppression? Is that what he came to do? Is that what he said? There was this unsettled feeling because people heard and saw all this. And they were wondering, and is this him? Is this really the Messiah? And there were certainly people in the crowd who understood that potentially. And there was others who didn't. There's a mixed crowd. And different accounts, there's different, you, you, can, you can check that out. But there was all kinds of feelings and expectations that were going on of who Jesus would be, should be, or could be. And Jesus and his disciples approach Jerusalem. And Jesus asks two of them in our text to get a donkey, which they do, and they put their coats on it. So Jesus can ride into Jerusalem. He's about to make an entrance. What the people expect at this point is that he would do exactly that, that he would take control and free them from Roman oppression. He had proved that he was wise. He proved that he was powerful. And he had, that, he had control over death itself. Because not long before this, in John chapter 11, he goes and one of his best friends, Lazarus, dies. And after four days in the grave, he raises him from the dead. And John records that even before this, and later on in his chapters in John, he says that the crowds were coming towards Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. And they were coming to him because of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. They wanted to see this guy who raised someone from the dead. And they're coming, and the crowds cover the roads with their coats, right? And they give him the red carpet treatment, if I could say that. And they wave palm branches and leaves and put them down on the ground. You know what they do? He comes by, and they take off their cloaks, you know, it's an outer garment, and they lay it down on the ground, and... And then they take, and they, I don't know if they did this, but here's a perfectly made cross. If you want to know how to do it, talk to Pastor Mike. Um, and they take their palm. They take a palm, and they put it down on the ground. I have a longer one laying there. And it's, it's a carpet. It's the red carpet treatment. So that Jesus could walk on that, and they could shout to him and say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save us now, God, they're crying out. This cry, you know what? 
is nothing new. Because in, in, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, King Jehu experienced the same thing. The Bible records that they did the exact same thing, laying their cokes on the ground and giving the red carpet treatment. The king is coming. Man, let's give him the treatment. He's got to walk on there. They didn't even let him sit on the donkey without putting their clothes on the back of the donkey. I'm going to put this back on. And you can have your perfectly made cross back. Thank you. And he's getting the red carpet treatment. And these people are yelling, save us now. They were freaking out. They thought he was coming to set up shop as king of Israel and free them from Roman oppression. And so they shout, just like it was prophesied, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Save us now and our salvation is right here. Oh wait, on a donkey? Please free us from these Romans, Jesus. We cry this all the time, you know. I mean, well, I know I cry this all the time. I don't know about you. But we occasionally probably do, all of us. But I I find that I cry this a lot of times. And I cry out, save me now, God. You know, help me now. I need you, God. I need you in this moment right now. We cry this all the time. We have this habit of crying out to God only when we're in desperate need of something because our devices are weak and they have failed. And we still need someone to rescue us, to help us. Or... We just want or actually demand something from God on our own terms. Save me now. Help me, God. But do it this way. And then I'll know it's you and you're the king of my life. Because you did how I wanted it. And as Sunday moves into Monday... Maybe people started to think, I don't know, because again, there were people there that I think legitimately knew and had a knowledge that this was the Messiah, but the timing was wrong. Their timing was wrong for what they expected and wanted of him. And maybe people started to think, why did he ride on that donkey and not on a horse? Because like that's, a stallion was typically ridden when a king would win a war or a battle, and it was a confident gesture of victory strong, and the way the stallion walks and gates and just going through and all dressed up as the king with people behind him, his armies and his commanders. I'm victorious. I'm the king. I rule. Political and physical. And listen, it's okay. You know, you notice in our text that there are two kinds of praise that are going on. One is a physical one. I already just demonstrated. They took off their cloaks in honor and worship of Jesus, quite honestly. They laid their cloaks down on their palms. They got those in honor and worship. They're, they're, they're adoring him. They're acknowledging him to be someone of rank, if you will. And they're making that declaration. But there's not just that physical act that they did. And that's important. And we do that, right? We sing and we, we clap. We raise our hands. We can kneel. We do different things and it's okay. And we should do that. The Bible even gives examples of that. But then there's another form of praise that's going on here and it's a verbal one. It's not just the body and, and the posture and what's happening on, what, what's happening with the body, but it's the mouth moving and words coming out and they're proclaiming together in unison. Hosanna to the son of David. They're making a verbal praise of Jesus. And they're doing all this because of their expectation of something that would be physical and political. For the most part, that's what most of them thought. And they're roaring. And maybe now now Monday comes and they're wondering, hey, Jesus isn't setting himself up in Jerusalem as king, 
as conqueror. He should be doing things as a powerful general does on a horse, running through, forcing himself politically through the system and establishing himself as a ruler. Well, make everybody be nice to us as Jewish people. The expectation was that he would smooth talk to religious leaders or even really show them who he was. Because after all, if he's a miracle worker and can walk on water, he could just wipe swipe his hand and take care of all the Romans. Quick, easy, and instantaneous liberation from the Roman emperor is what they wanted. And because it didn't come, they felt, well, I think they felt let down. In John chapter 18... Very important words. Well, these are all important words in here. Don't get me wrong. But John chapter 18, Jesus is before Pilate. He's not crucified yet. We're going to hear about that Good Friday. But he's before, he's before Pilate. And Pilate asks him a question in John 18. He says in verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? And then in verse 36, Jesus says, answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. No, Jesus' kingdom is not the United States of America. Some of us don't act or talk that way sometimes. Be careful. It's not. He's not here for a... Eventually, it's going to come for a a brief time, well, in light of eternity. But he's not here for that. I, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. His kingdom isn't of this world. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he doesn't want righteousness. It doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue that and try. This is not his kingdom. This is not, this is not where he's setting up shop until the time when he comes again. It's not. And we sometimes mistake that. And Jesus says, it's not of this world. The crowds are cheering Jesus as son of, the son of David one day. And when he wasn't the conquering king they wanted, they turned their backs, so to speak, and they looked for someone else maybe that could meet that expectation the next day. How do I know? Because the Jews themselves, well, mostly the leaders, but the Jews themselves here in John 18 are the ones, he said, they'd be fighting for me, my, my, my servants, so I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. To the Jews? Yeah, they wanted him down too. Because expectations were met. It didn't look like the part to them. You know, I can understand why they, they looked for someone else when their expectation wasn't met because they felt let down. I can understand why because, I don't know about you, but we too, and I, I too sometimes give up on people when they don't meet my expectation. In different ways. It just might be emotionally. But, but we, we get that way sometimes. You know, excitement and praise one day, and then devastation, emptiness, and frustration the next day because he didn't blow through here and free us. He wasn't the one that is saving us and, and is our Savior, our salvation that has come. Not in the political and physical sense, he's not. And so the second context is that It's very real and a relevant tension that carries over from Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago and it exists today right here, right now. 
And it's a tug of war between our flesh, between who we are as people in this body and God's move into our heart, into our spirit. Or if I will say our heart, our Jerusalem, the core, the center of all this. To the Jew, Jerusalem was the center. It was the core. It was everything. And as Jesus moves and wants to make an entrance into our Jerusalem, our hearts, what happens then? Jerusalem and the Jewish people were the apple of God's eye, the Bible says. In Psalm 17, 8, Proverbs 7, 2, and in Zechariah 2, verse 8, the very prophet that prophesied about the king coming on a donkey, he said, and very specifically, you can read that the Jewish people, that God's people are the apple of his eye, meaning, man, he is jealous for them, he guards them, he protects, they're beautiful, and he'll do anything to keep them and to get them through and he preserve them. He loves them so much and he treasures them so much. We're the apple of his eye. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 9 to 11. The Bible says, For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. He found them in a desert land, in an empty, howling wasteland. He surrounded them and watched over them. He guarded them as he would guard his own eyes. Like an eagle that rouses her chick and hovers over her young, so he spread his wings to take them up and carried them safely on his pinions. What a ride that would be, huh? You know, not long before Luke 19 also records this entrance into Jerusalem by Jesus before he died. In Luke 13, Luke records in verse 34 that Jerusalem, he was walking through and he was looking over the city and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And then he says, and you were not willing. You were willing. You wanted something of me. You expected something of me to be powerful and showy and show off and do whatever. But when I just wanted you to come to me and be with me and I wanted to protect you and I wasn't, I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't the stallion, the guy on the stallion, I'm the guy on the donkey. You didn't want to come to me and be under my wings and my protection and my rulership. I'm jumping ahead. He didn't really say that, but he's, that's, that's what he's implying there. You don't want my lordship, my kingship in your life. You're not willing to come to me. And in chapter 19, as he is approaching the city of Jerusalem, after he walks into the city and he looks over, and the Bible says that he weeps over the city because he knows what is to come because of his people's inability to receive him for who he was. You know, the Bible says in John chapter 1, That the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. But even more, it says that he came to his own and his own did not what? Did not receive him. His own people. The king. You know why? Because Jesus came to be a king of hearts, not a king of an earthly kingdom. Huge difference. We're talking about a physical, political. And listen, that's fine. Whatever it is. That's not what he came for. He came to be the king of your heart. You know, here's proof that you are the apple of his eye and that he loves humanity so much that while we were yet sinners, 
In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that Christ died for us, the ungodly, while we were sinners. There's no mixing up the words. While we were sinners, he died for you already. Oh, I know he knew everything. I get it. But while you were a sinner, he died for you. That's how much he treasures you. And he came for you. He would have never came if it wasn't just for you. If you were one sinner, he would have still came for you. How will we welcome Jesus into our Jerusalem, into our hearts? Will we let him through the gates, our lives today? Or will we just let him pass through? He comes so humbly, right? Yet he comes so powerfully without manipulating, exploiting, or even forcing us. He doesn't do that. Will you, will I, will we allow him to come in or... As I said, just go through. And then when he isn't what we expect or what we demand or what we say he should be, will we then join the crowds all around us and say, crucify him? Or maybe you might not even say that, but you might just stay off to the side in silence, but you're actually joining the chant in your heart. Ah, get rid of him. He's not all that he's pent up to be. I remember... I have memory memories like this, many of them. I was at Warwick Mall with Preston. He was, I, he was probably two. He's, you know, walking with the little legs. Look at him now. He's walking around. You know. And I remember we were in the mall, and Sharon's at work in the evening, and I go there just to walk around, get him out of the house. And he would stop, and he would look on the shelves at toys or whatever. And I remember I would say, it's time to go. And he was so fixated on that whatever, kid toy on the, on the shelf. And I would say, Preston, it's time to go. And I didn't physically grab him. Sometimes I did because, well, my patience was short sometimes. And so I'd pick him up and take him. But oftentimes I would just say, it's time to go. Because Preston loved to walk. That was the thing. He, he loved to walk. So I would walk away. And he would be like, say with that speaker. As I say, Preston, it's, it's time to go. We've got to go. We've got to get home. Hey, Preston, it's time to, we, it's time to go. We've got to go. Come on. And he's still. Hey, Preston. Preston, we've got to go. Come on. And finally it hits him when he finally looks up and I'm about 25, 30 feet away and he looks around and he's a toy but then there's people around him he doesn't know and there's a lot of room between us and he hears my voice and he sees me. He drops it and comes and runs to me. And you know what? That's what God does. He, he's wanting us to take his lead. He's not, he's not going to come back and wait to, for us to manipulate the situation and do everything so we do it according to Preston's way and then I'll be a dad to you. And then, you know, because he's in charge that way. He's controlling the whole situation. No, Jesus controls the situation. And he says, come follow me. And I'm going, it's time to come. And then you hear his voice and you see, you follow after him. I remember him doing that. And when he, and he followed my lead. And that's what God does. It's a matter of control. It's a matter of where you're going to, who you're going to submit to. Am I going to keep being just enamored, enthralled, and so vested in something so temporary right here that's physical and political? Or will I move to the context that matters, my heart, the spiritual governance of Jesus in our lives? I don't suggest we don't care about what happens politically or any other way in our world. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying Jesus didn't come for that. He came for your heart. And it's about control. It's about being present and realizing, wait, you're the leader, you're the God, you're the master, i got to follow you. It's all about that. That's what it comes down to. And it's about who governs your life and how they govern your life. Let's watch this video to make the point. Two minutes. Oh, maybe not. 
Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? Yeah. You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always... You, you can't, you have to make that choice. You have to come to that place where you give up, you submit to Jesus and you give up your rights to govern your life the way you want it because he wants to be king of your heart. And he, he's either king or he's something else other than that because he will have it no other way because he is by nature, by character, by everything, by essence. He is king of the universe. He is Lord of the universe as much as he is savior. For the sinner. Amen. Who's got the stool in your life? Is he just going to pass through and it all sounds good and he has a temporary seat there and then you one cheek him off and then you just steal the stool back? We're not any different really. You know, my plan versus God's plan. We want Jesus to come and make life easy and convenient, painless and self-accommodating. That is definitely where we're at today. In fact, we're convinced that it's supposed to be that way. And we've taken up all kinds of forms and waves of of saying that we're serving Jesus, involving ourselves in all kinds of things in our world that are nothing more than political and feel-good stuff that has no eternal life attached to it. None. 
and we spend our time and energy and we lose the gospel, we waste our time, and the stool is vacated by Jesus and it's sitting there and we're saying, why is everything going the way it is? How come people aren't following Jesus? How come Jesus isn't being king of my community? Well, it's because you're doing everything your community does and Jesus is off the stool. Sorry, it gets me fired up because it really comes down to who's the king of your heart. And we run around like mad people trying to think we're going to help Jesus set up his kingdom. Man, you better start preaching the gospel and telling people that they need to surrender their lives to Jesus so he could sit on that stool. Or otherwise, they're going to face an eternity and Jesus is just going to pass through their Jerusalem and he won't be king of their heart. Now, I don't know who that is. God does. You can have one of two attitudes. You can have the one of the crowd, generally, where we're going to praise Jesus because he's the trending figure of the day. Just like political figures today that are absolutely wacko. Sorry. And maybe that's what it was. And he, and he was the trending figure of the day because, well, he did miracles and he did this and they wanted whatever. He was trending. So we all do it because he's in. And he does great things and we'll do what we want with him. Or you can have the second attitude, which is that of the consecrated and committed heart to him because of who he says he is. And then you do what he tells you to do. Question as we finish. When Palm Sunday is over, we step into Monday. In fact, when Tuesday is over and you go into Wednesday or when Saturday is over, you go to Sunday. When any day is over, you go to the next day. And when there's that one day and you're able to say, oh, Hosanna, save me. And you're the one who saves and you're great and you're king of my life and you're king of my heart. And the next day comes and he hasn't done what we want him to do. Do we still sing Hosanna in the same way we did on Sunday? Let's not give God half-hearted praises when he doesn't meet our expectations. Remember that our job is to praise God for who he is, not what we want him to be or even become to us. The truth is, Jesus came in on a donkey and he, he accepted the hype, but he never declared, I'm the ruler now. He didn't force himself into the lives of people. The truth is, Jesus never forces himself into our lives. Oh, he makes many entrances when we let him. And he wants to be king for every day, not just a day. And that only happens if we let him. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray, God, you take these words. And you would just do something with them in our hearts. Stir our conscience. Convict us, Lord God, and cause us, Lord, to relinquish the control that we think we have and give it to you. Because you are our Lord, you are our King. Help us to take our eyes off of temporary things and focus on those things that matter, eternity. And help us, Lord, to work with you as you set up your kingdom in our hearts, in the hearts of men, Lord. We pray, Lord Jesus, you give us wisdom as we proceed today. May we continue to declare that you are Hosanna. You're the God who saves and you're the one who has come and you're coming to save us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to declare that loud and clear and to make the gospel message clear that there is only one way to God the Father and it's you, Jesus. That you're the only mediator between God and men. You're the only one by which we can be saved and it's the name Jesus, Lord. 
Lord, we thank you and praise you that you pursue us, you love us, and help us to keep our eyes on your lordship and on your kingship in our lives. We surrender today. Help us as we go to make clear your rulership. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.